Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This week and next week, we are taking a little break from our early church history class to discuss a recent debate about Christ's identity. So if you're not interested in that, just skip ahead two episodes and you can pick up on the class. But since this debate just happened, I wanted to take a couple of episodes to respond while it's still fresh in people's memories. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can watch it on YouTube or listen on Spotify. Just search, Is Jesus Yahweh Debate? You'll find the Gospel Truth Channel on YouTube or the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, episode 271, in your podcast app, whatever you use. But even if you haven't yet listened to this debate, we are going to play out the audio and respond to the opening statements. So you should be able to follow along just fine. Now, this was a two-on-two debate between Dr. Dustin Smith and Pastor William Barlow, who took the negative position, Jesus is not Yahweh, versus Dr. Kyle Essery and apologist Samuel Nesson, who took the affirmative position that Jesus is Yahweh. In this episode, Brandon Duke of Truthborn and I are going to perform a post-mortem critique of the debate. Well, not really the whole debate, just the opening statement on the affirmative side of the proposition. We'll play out Dr. Essery's opening statement and respond to it. Of course, Dr. Smith and Pastor Will responded to several of these points in the debate, but I thought it would be helpful to take a little more time with them here. Then, in our next episode, we'll take on Samuel Nassan's opening statement. Before jumping into my conversation with Brandon Duke, I first want to formally introduce Kyle Essery. He's a scholar of the Old Testament with a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies. He is currently a lecturer at the Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary, where he also serves as the interim dean. He is originally from Dallas, Texas in the United States, but has lived in China, the Middle East, and Malaysia for most of the past decade. And I hasten to add to this little bio that he also seems like a genuinely kind man. Maybe that's just a southern accent, but he came across as fair-minded and respectful, and I certainly appreciate that. Well, that's enough of an introduction. Here now is episode 491, Refuting Kyle Essery's Case That Jesus is Yahweh, with Brandon Duke. Hey, everyone, and welcome, Brandon Duke, to Restitutio. So good to talk to you today. Thanks for having me here, Sean. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So we're talking about a debate that just happened last week. I was curious what your impression of the debate was. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I think my first and maybe biggest takeaway is how there was universal positive reaction to it regarding sort of the behavior, the demeanor of all the debaters, that it was not cringy, that people behaved themselves and were respectful. And and so it made it easier to listen to the actual content of the debate. That was one takeaway, and I'm, I'm really proud of, of our guys for conducting themselves in the way they did. I know talking to both Dustin and Will, you know, they both see that as a priority to carry themselves in a Christian way so that the arguments can be heard. So I was impressed with that, that literally by the end of the debate, even the moderator was was cheering them for that. <laughs> and, you know, scrolling through the comment section, it's, it's similar. It's people saying, boy, this was actually listenable, unlike some other debates that get pretty chippy and, and painful. So... Mm-hmm. The almost the universal response is that our side won, 
which is always nice. The video is spreading pretty fast. Last time I checked, it's got about two and a half thousand views, which looks like it outpaces most of the stuff that's on that channel. And uh, so all that's good. And and then on the substance, I just thought our guys seemed really well prepared and ready to respond to the other side. It seemed like they had read their playbook, like they knew <laughs> what arguments were coming from the other side and, mm-hmm. and were ready for that. And, and I love the opening statement from the Unitarians too. It's seven really strong points that I don't think the other side could respond to maybe more than two or three. And, and those I didn't see as strong responses. So I, I thought our guys did really well. And um, we can get to some of the the things that I, I've seen Trinitarians say as, you know, sort of count as wins or, you know, chalk up on their side, but it's odd proof texts, some of which I had never even heard before, cross-indexing the Greek Septuagint translation with a odd usage in the New Testament, trying to build a, a case. That's got to tell you something about the non-face value character yep. of the case they're trying to make. Totally. I mean, one of their first claims was, and we can get to it and actually listen to it, but like one of their first claims was like proving a, an argument from silence, which is just, it's not, it's not where you'd want to start normally. Yep. I tell you, I so loved Dustin's concluding statement. His, mm-hmm. his closing was by far my favorite part because the cross X for whatever reason, and I don't know if this is part of the uh, veteran Will Barlow strategy or not, but it was incredibly chummy. There were all these statements being made during cross-acts and during their concluding statement of, thank you, we're so respectful, we all like each other. And then when Dustin got up, it was just like, all right, well, I think you guys are great people, but your arguments are terrible. We've destroyed them all. You haven't touched ours, and we win. And I was just like, yes! I'm like fist pumping and thinking, get them! You know, we actually landed some, some really powerful blows there. They're doing this in a, in a respectful and loving way, but at the same time, like we do have strong disagreements. I mean, this is yeah. an important question. Is Jesus Yahweh? And I will say this, having watched some attorneys in action and watched other debaters, sometimes you try and lull in the cross-examination, you try and lull them to sleep a little bit too. I think Will was trying to achieve two things there. If I, if I can defend him a little bit, one is sort of set a tone that was positive, but the other I think is, is to lull him to sleep a little bit because at one point he got, I think it was Samuel, to say, oh, yeah, uh, the father has a God, too. Yeah, that was so <laughs> weird. <laughs> so, like, I haven't gone back. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening through it all here because I haven't gone back since that night and, and listened through it, the, the cross-sex, you know, minute by minute. But I think the, the idea was load up the gun for the conclusion with the cross-sex. As they're making uncomfortable admissions during the cross-examination, even though that sounds friendly, then it does it. It loads Dustin's gun so he can he can go after him in the conclusion. And I love that conclusion, too, like you said, because he goes through it. Here's all of our points that you didn't either respond to or didn't make a strong response to. Mm-hmm. And then he goes through and says, and here are the, the assumptions or underlying mistakes in your thinking that leads you to make the bad arguments or not be able to respond to us. So it was like a meta critique at the end, too, which mm. I, oh, was really good. I loved it. Yeah. All right, so that's a little bit on the debate. Let's get to it. We want to take apart the opening statement on the Trinitarian side and subject it to some critique, some analysis, and also give some responses. A lot of these things were responded to during the course of the debate, but this is my podcast and my chance to say whatever I think. And uh, Brandon is uh, well qualified to uh, just share his thoughts. And so let's begin. All right. Well, I want to begin by thanking Marlon 
Dustin and William for this opportunity to discuss scripture. Our question is, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? Now, this is not a philosophical question, nor is this a question about historical interpretation. It is a question about the Bible. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? I'm going to pause it right there. <laughs> sure it is. Of course, it's historical. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What, what possible Bible reading doesn't get enhanced by understanding history and context? Yeah, I thought that was crazy, too. Our guys, I think it's their seventh point where they're like, look, all of your readings are anachronistic. We know that this developed over four centuries. It's interesting, Our uh, the Trinitarian opponents, they wanted to not have to talk about the history. It was so strange because, like, that's usually our move is to say, okay, let's just talk about the Bible. And yeah. they're always bringing in philosophy, the communicatio idiomatum and mm. eternal generation and persons as distinct from being. These are all philosophical or of the same substance, homoousios. These are all philosophical ideas that are not in the Bible that they, they need in order to talk about the theory, the model. History, I, I can see why they don't want to talk about history. Because mm -hmm. I, I would say the history is definitely on our side. You know, it's, it's been my experience that even just describing the facts of what occurred in the 4th and 5th centuries is sufficient to disprove the Trinity and the dual natures. It almost defeats it just to describe it. Uh, so I can see why they wouldn't want to go there. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting opener. Did that catch your attention too? Oh, oh yeah. I had an idea. I mean, our guys were going to go to the history to, to look at it from that perspective. And obviously, at some point, these guys, the, the Trinitarians, are going to have to go to the two natures explanations to explain away and they did. certain proof texts, right? So and they did, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure they could even follow their own rule regarding the history. There, Maybe it was during the closing, the cross-ex, Dustin pulled out RPC Hansen and had a quote from that, boom, this is a late developing thing. Everybody was yeah. a Unitarian of some sort until the 300s. Hans's quote is that uh, before 355, everyone, with the exception of Athanasius, everyone else is a subordinationist. Yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how a Protestant copes with that, a Protestant Trinitarian. I mean, I get if you're Catholic, you're like, okay, fine. It's a progressive revelation. The church figured it out. But what do you say to that uh, if you're a, a Protestant? If you're a Bible alone guy, yeah, it's real hard. It's real you know. awkward. Yeah, everyone got it wrong, and they continued to get it wrong until they finally got it right, and it took them 300 years to read the Bible clearly. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, continue. Our goal, then, is to show that at least one passage reveals that Jesus is Yahweh. Because if one passage reveals that Jesus is Yahweh, then the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. Hey, you want to pause there? Yeah. One verse. <laughs> like, It's a low bar. One verse teaches it. Then this most important thing that everyone needs to know to be Christian, defined as even a Christian at all, one verse sneaking in there someplace. Probably something that's a fulfillment passage or something like that. That'll, that'll do it. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I also wonder about the title what is it called? A resolution, right? Jesus yeah. is Yahweh, and you have affirm and you have deny. Okay, so I don't think it's possible for a Trinitarian to say Jesus is Yahweh. And I know that Trinitarians do say yeah. it. I know that Samuel and Kyle do say it. But I just, I don't think it's logically possible unless you're a modalist. If you're a modalist, I get it. If you're oneness, it makes sense. Jesus is Yahweh. There's no distinction between the persons. But to say that the Son is the Father, 
which is what saying yeah. Jesus is Yahweh's doing, just from a logical perspective, is just nonsense. Yeah, it just requires the same equivocation on the name Yahweh that they like to do with the term God, right? Yeah, but with a and, name, how can you identify a substance with a name? Names are yeah. for identities and, you know, for persons. Yeah. The name is for a person. So if, yeah. if Jesus is Yahweh and the Father is Yahweh, you've got two options. Either Jesus is the Father or there are two Yahwehs, and they want to say no to both. I felt like they didn't even have a case. Like, I know what they yeah. believe. They believe in the typical social Trinitarianism, although that yeah. wasn't even entirely clear, but probably. But what they argued for, I don't think, even if they had won, I don't, I don't think I would have agreed with them because it didn't make any sense. Yeah, I think we'd probably find Trinitarians that would have taken the negative side on that too, Yeah, right? Alongside our guys, they would say, no, 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 Jesus isn't Yahweh. Um, Jesus is God. He's almost just with the Father, but... But I don't know what you do, because I think in Will's Cross-X, he asked, so is, is Yahweh the Trinity, or are they... And they wanted to spread the name They wanted to spread the name out to each right. of them the same right. way that they would do the nature. But then you have multiple Yahwehs. You lose the Shema. They've got to deny, I guess, that it's, it's a proper name or something. I, I don't know how they would... I don't know how they do that. Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking it. about a way that they could solve this, where it's like a last name. So mm. my last name is Finnegan. So like, there's yeah. lots of Finnegan's. We all share the name Finnegan. But then you can't say there's one Finnegan. Right. So uh, you can have different persons share a name, but then you can't say there's only one of that name. (laughs) Yep. This is just basic logic. Good. All right. Well, let's press on. We will make two contentions from the Bible. First, we contend that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. Second, we contend that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. As to our first contention that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh, we would point to three passages where people accuse Jesus of blasphemy. In John 5, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and the Jews sought to kill him because, quote, he was making himself equal to God, end quote. In John 8, Jesus said, quote, before Abraham was, I am, end quote, and the Jews tried to stone him which is the biblical punishment for blasphemy. Finally, in John 10, Jesus said, quote, I and the Father are one, end quote. And the Jews picked up stones and replied, quote, You, being a man, make yourself God, end quote. In each of these passages, the Bible does not deny the validity of the Jewish response. Whereas the Bible regularly clarifies when people misunderstand Jesus, it chooses not to do so here. All right. There's some fodder. What do you think? <laughs> well, I love that they're all from John, which also clarifies all of those statements in context. They're all problematic for translation issues or contextual issues. But I want to just step back and say, you know, when you start with a, a claim, the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. So what we'd have to say is the Bible starts by claiming it on the mouths of the of Jesus' opponents, and then the Bible chooses not to have Jesus correct it. <laughs> so now we know he's God. <laughs> Did, you didn't find that very convincing? No. that's a Boy, that, yeah, that's not the way I would do it if I were a Trinitarian. Yeah. His, his and, stated purpose here was to, to show the Bible doesn't deny Jesus is Yahweh, which was a really weird way to phrase it. On the flip side, all we have to do is find one claim where he's human or something else 
And that would be exactly a denial that he's God. Mm -hmm. Being born, dying, things that God can't do according to the Bible. Mm -hmm. One of those would disprove the, the claim. And then they're immediately back to the two natures theory as, as a, the philosophy they don't want to use to try and explain the reading. I so but, appreciated Dustin's response on this one. I think it's just it's just the way to, to handle it. And what he said is that there's a misunderstanding motif throughout the Gospel yeah. of John, and it's well understood and recognized by people who study John. Kyle, <laughs> bless his heart, Kyle picks out John 5.18. I've I got to at least just look at this one with you, which uh, says that he's making himself equal with God, okay? <laughs> what it really says is, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But then Jesus responds in the very next verse and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. <laughs> if there's one thing Jesus doesn't do is make himself equal with God. Yeah. I mean, that's Philippians yeah. 2 right there. He didn't seek equality with God or, or consider yeah. it as something to be grasped. I don't think that's what this text is doing at all. You just read to the next verse and Jesus is like, I can't do anything. Yeah. What, what more could someone say to indicate they're not equal with the one who can do everything? Indeed. Same deal with John 10, with the I and the Father are one. His whole point is the Father is the one that's empowering him to be able to protect the sheep. <laughs> it's not It's not something he's got intrinsically that he brought with him from his deity to the incarnation. Like in each case, they're just, they're Unitarian proof texts as much as they're yeah. Trinitarian proof texts. It's, it's strange. Yeah, John 1030. If somebody ever came at me in a debate with John 1030, it would take a, a an obscene amount of self-control not to just fall on the ground and start giggling because it's just like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you really, do you really think that when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he was talking about ontological oh, yeah. categories? Is that totally. what you think, Jesus, oh, yeah. who has already just said in two <laughs> verses before, I'm taking care of the sheep, then he said, the Father's taking care of the sheep, then he said, I and the Father are one. You think that's what he's talking about? You think he's talking about Nicene Usia? Come on. Well, in his, yeah, in his omniscience, he was looking forward into the next 400 years and anticipating how people would read him so that they would be clear then. Yeah. No, it's, I agree. And jo John 10 is, is such a powerful text to understand how Jesus uses the word God in a secondary sense. Uh, mm, because he goes yeah. on to use that as an example to defend himself. He said, look, the, yeah. the word of God came to these others, you know, called them God. He goes on to explain that this is nothing new and that you, yeah. you can be referred to as God in this secondary sense. And nobody's reading before verse 30 or past verse 30. <laughs> <laughs> if you do either one of those, the Trinitarian proof text melts away. I'm kind of wondering too if this is why if this is why maybe Kyle didn't want the debate to be about whether Jesus is God because he knows and if memory serves, he even acknowledged that this is a usage. Yes, appropriate humans and others can be called gods. Yes, so he does bring that up. I'm wondering if that's why the the topic was what it was. Is Kyle saying, well, look, we don't want to. We don't want to give it away by using the term God. Let's let's try and identify it with the God. Yeah. Um, that's my that's my guess. But then it runs into the problems you were mentioning earlier too. Then John eight fifty eight before Abraham was I am. What would you say on that one? If you look through John the entire gospel, Jesus says 
I am ego of me multiple times just to say, hey, guys, it's me. It doesn't seem to mean Yahweh in the other references. Yeah. Not to mention earlier in the chapter, the I am that, that he is is the Messiah. He identifies it, you know, earlier in the yeah. chapter. Yeah. You know, I think a more honest translation removes that proof text from people. And Yeah. If you say you know, I am he or something like that, or I have yeah. been since yeah. before Abraham. For John 8, Kyle would do well to just read, once again, just read the chapter, or even just the second half of the chapter. It's kind of a long chapter. And just note the antagonism. And to take Jesus woodenly when he's intentionally being obtuse is to just miss how, like, the Gospel of John works, okay? Like, he says, oh, Abraham, rejoice to see my day. And they're like, oh, you're not even 50 years old. Like, he doesn't say to them, I'm talking about prophecy, duh. No, he just makes it worse. <laughs> like, he just yeah. kind of, like, rubs rubs it in more. You know, there's just a lot going on here. This is not, this is not like, a straightforward discourse with his disciples. This is antagonistic. Like, we're going head-to-head. Your father's the devil. Oh, yeah, at least we're not born of fornication. I mean, this is hot. This is a hot debate. And uh, to take it out and just be like, oh, yeah, he's claiming to be Yahweh. What, he revealed that to his enemies? Yeah. In this, in a subble way, but that they all got, I've never been persuaded by this one at all. I, can, yeah. I just don't think it's that strong. And by the way, all of this is working on some interesting assumptions about blasphemy, right? A pretty, pretty narrow definition that blasphemy is claiming to be God. It's like, man, there's a, as I understand it, there's a much wider range of things that could be blasphemous. Mm-hmm. And, there, and there's assuming, assuming this narrow definition that if they're mm-hmm. using Jesus of blasphemy, that all that that could be is him to be claiming that he's God. It's like, wow. It would seem like you'd have very, very few people convicted of blasphemy. It would just be crazy, crazy people. Yeah, yeah. Nobody that would get a serious following. Yeah, very good. All right, let's go on. Our second contention is that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. We will make three arguments to support this contention. The first argument is the argument from worship. It has three premises. Premise one, the Bible teaches people to worship and serve Yahweh alone. Premise two, the Bible teaches that people worship Jesus, and therefore our conclusion, Jesus must be Yahweh. QED, are you convinced? (laughs) Oh, I'm sold. I can't think of any other places where any persons other than God are worshipped. Oh, wait, yeah, Dustin had like 12 of them that he read off (laughs) in the rebuttal. (laughs) I mean, just from the Old Testament alone, I think he had 10 or 12. I don't remember. I just remember him. And he was ready for it, obviously. You know, he had his note ready to to pull it up. I get it. They're trying to make a claim based on a certain kind of Greek word, a certain kind of worship versus another. But It just seems seems wrong-headed. It, like, expects us to use language the way lawyers use language. Mm -hmm. And, like, people aren't lawyers. Lawyers are barely people. No, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, legal language is incredibly precise, and it always uses words in the same way so that there's clear. But that's not not the way actual discourse or narratives function. Every word has a semantic domain. It has flexible usage. And so it is with the word worship. You know, I know that in English, in modern times, we tend to associate worship only with God, but not like when the King James was done. Like yeah. in the old 1600s, like, no, like you could worship humans. Why not? When the Magi come to see the baby Christ or the child Christ, however old he was, 
they worship him in the King James Version. Like in some of the parables of Jesus, you know, you go to somebody and you fall on your knees is how our translations would render it. But the old translation would say, oh, no, he worshiped him. The famous verse that Dustin brought up in Revelation, what was it? Uh, three, yeah, three nine. Three nine, yeah. Uh, Behold, yeah. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before your feet, is how yep. the old version would do it. Now our versions will say bow down instead of worship because we we like to limit that word. But just because that's the way it is in modern English doesn't mean you can impose that on Greek or Hebrew or even Old English. These words had a broader range of meaning. Sometimes they, they do like to focus on a specific word. They're like, oh, that's proskuneo. If we look at Latrevo, it's different. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but these kinds of like legal arguments for language, to me, they're very flimsy. Because all you need yep. to do is widen your scope a little bit more, and then suddenly you find a counterexample. And I know it's like yep. incredibly common to just search Greek or Hebrew words in the Bible. But like when the Bible is written, people that wrote the Bible weren't given a lexicon of <laughs> only biblical words that they could use. Right. That's ridiculous. So they could make sure that their their usage lined up with the BDAG back then. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like people wrote the language that they knew that was being used. So then to only say, well, this word is only used in this particular way within the Bible, and you can't look at other Greek literature or other Hebrew literature, it's just like, that's a very artificial distinction that you're just concocting. As we expand our scope, we see that words are flexible and are used in different ways. And uh, so I, I think like any argument like that is just not worth the paper it's written on yep. for our side or for their side. Dale Tuggy, I, I think it's famous in my mind for getting angry with like grammarians for, for making arguments from grammar. And I think it's the same problem as if the grammar alone or one, one word alone can solve a thing rather yeah. than the whole context. And let's say that they want to make a broader claim about people just honoring someone or like, like that there's, there's a kind of worship that's only due to God and forget the words, Jesus gets that or something. Well, th they can't make that case either because there's plenty of Unitarian proof texts that talk about it being him being the conduit for it to God. Mm -hmm. Look, if you want to, if you're a Jewish and you're like, Nope, we totally disagree with that. Only, you know, no man can ever have that. All right, fine. But you're a Christian, you've already established that there is this mediator position between God and men. So whatever word you want to use for it, God is is working a plan to put a man in between him and us to elevate him. Yeah, I, I don't think this argument works. And I don't even remember if they responded, like how they defended it in response to Dustin's well done machine gun of verses. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was to to push back and say no, no, no. This this word is special, and uh, but but I don't think it worked. Yeah, the fact is the kind of language that modern Trinitarian Christians use to talk about Jesus is entirely, not partially, entirely absent from the Bible, from the Old Testament, and from the New Testament. Samuel brings this point up during the Q&A. At the very end, he starts making this argument that Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, or 1 through 4, clearly teaches the Trinity. And it's just like, to defeat that argument, all one would need to do is just read the verses out loud. There is no word Trinity, there's no co-equality of the same 
substance. There's no co-eternal, <laughs> you know, like all these different terms and phrases and two natures and generation or eternal generation. Is that what it says in Genesis 1? No, it says God created the heavens and the earth and like he, it was empty and then he said, let there be light and the spirit was hovering. The only way to get the Trinity out of that is to read it in first. Yep. Kyle said, I think it might have been in his opening. He said, we bring our presuppositions to the text. Are our presuppositions consistent with it? So it seems like literally the definition of eisegesis that he's assuming, which is really, I mean, he's he's a smart guy. He's a studied guy. So I don't understand why he would accept that as like a hermeneutic. Yeah. I wonder if it's better to say, what are the presuppositions of the text? You know what I mean? Like, what what is this author presupposing about God or about the Messiah when writing this and looking at what has come before or their own context historically to answer that kind of a question? You know, you could do that with the word Trinity in the uh, the very end of the 20th century. You could find within the semantic domain of the year 1999, a picture of a, a girl dressed in black leather <laughs> whose name is Trinity, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. from the movie The Matrix. Mm-hmm. But if you were in the 1980s, you couldn't use that because that didn't yeah. exist yet. You have to look at the time period for the presuppositions. But he 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 just like blatantly asserted it. He's like, "No, nah, we have our presuppositions. We're bringing them right in." And as long as nothing breaks apart this sort of coherency of our internal build, then we're fine. Let's go back to the movie thing. Lots of people can interpret a movie in a, quote, internally coherent way that the creators of the movie are like, that is not at all what we were trying to say. (laughs) That was not the point, right? We see this in modern literature and film where people read into some cult classic and they're reading all this stuff into it. They're bringing in their presuppositions. They're building this case. And then, you know, George Lucas, whoever comes out and says, that's kind of cool, but that is not what we were going for. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many times poor John, when he gets to hear what people did with, with his gospel. Um, <laughs> wow. Oh yeah, my. that's a powerful Man. analogy you draw there. Your point about let's get in step with them rather than seeing if they're in step with us. That's I like that. Yeah, I mean, you could concoct a wild, complex theory that accounts for all the data, but that doesn't prove it or like make it convincing to other people that don't already agree with your theory. For those of us who don't buy into your theory, we want to see you derive it from scripture, not just read it in and say, see, there are no difficult verses. It's like, yeah, but your theory is incoherent. So like, (laughs) all right, well, let's uh, see the next part here. We will all agree on the first premise. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, listen, Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. The two titles for the one God in this verse are the titles Elohim, God, and Yahweh. The title Yahweh is the specific covenantal name for Israel's God. It was used in the Garden of Eden, it was used by the patriarchs, and it was revealed by God to Moses at the burning bush. But the term Elohim, God, is a more generic term. It can describe a variety of beings, both divine and human. It often refers to Yahweh, but can also refer to beings in God's heavenly council. Psalm 82 verse 1 says, quote, God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods, Elohim, end quote. It can refer to demons or to God's messenger as well. 
As Dr. Smith, Dustin has argued, and I agree, it can refer to humans. Exodus 7 verse 1 says, I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh in reference to Moses. Psalm 45 verse 6 says, your throne Elohim is forever and ever in reference to the Davidic king. It can even refer to the spirit of a dead person, as with Samuel in 1 Samuel 28, verse 13. Thus, the title Elohim has a much wider range of meaning than the title Yahweh. It can describe Yahweh or various representatives of Yahweh, including both angels and humans. And it also can refer to the gods, Elohim, of the nations. I don't think we would criticize or complain or correct a single word there. Amen. I mean, he's just <laughs> explaining how the word God functions biblically. And I think he's about to make the point that Yahweh does not function that way. <laughs> that Yahweh <laughs> is used only for the supreme deity. But let's wait and see. These are idols who are certainly not Yahweh. And this is why the Old Testament specifies that Yahweh is your God or Elohim a total of 438 times. Yahweh is unlike any of these other Elohim. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 says, For Yahweh, your Elohim, is the Elohe Elohim, the God of gods. No other God is Yahweh. The Bible teaches very clearly that there is a creator creature distinction. Oh, he just smuggled it in. Classic <laughs> James White creator creation distinction. Notice, Brandon, that there was no verse cited for that little jewel, that nugget. Where did that come from? Yeah, Not in yeah. the Bible. There is no verse that makes a big deal and says, I am the creator and you're all my creation. There's a huge distinction and you know, there's this huge divide between the two no that's that's not a that's a modern apologetics point maybe augustine made it that's still 400 years after christ so it's like even if it was him that did it i'm i'm not i'm not buying it you know it's not biblical yeah, yeah and i don't know like our first century or second century guys like justin i'd have to think back when he starts you know talking about the logos as the agent of creation and everything how how he divides the creator creature distinction between that which is emanated and whatever like that gets really muddied as i understand it in those first few centuries is the logos is it a creature is it an extension of god like all that stuff gets super complicated as i understand it so I, honestly i'd say to a large degree it was undefined you do find a couple of authors who specify I think I'm thinking of maybe Theophilus of Antioch or one of these guys who who talks about how the logos was internal to God, mm. just like you have your own thought process in your head, so it always exists so long as you exist, right? God's eternal, so the logos is eternal, but then it becomes externalized, and that mm. is the beginning of the word. So that is done at a certain point in time, and uh, yeah. so you have, uh, and he actually uses the word like vomit. <laughs> to describe it, it's kind of crass. It's like, Bleh! and now the word became hypostasized. Yeah. I don't know if that's a word, but it became a person <laughs> and started to have independence uh, while God retained his internal logos at the same time. But um, 
Would, would they use the word creation to describe that? I don't know. Yeah. I know that Arius was comfortable with the word creation and saying he there was when he was not and saying that he was made from nothing. And I think that's like him putting kind of a sharp point on it. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think people before Arius would make it so stark. Mm. You know what I mean? Sorry. Yeah. For somebody who starts by saying, we're not going to discuss history, we're not going to discuss, discuss philosophy, and then to not cite a Bible verse to make his main contention that there is this creator-creation distinction and never will there be any, you know, overlap between them. You know, just it just seemed like he smuggled that in. You know, he was like making points that all made sense, that were biblically backed, and then it's just like, shloop. And now we're going to yeah. use this as a lever. We'll see. Yeah. Only Yahweh stands on the side of creator. Everything else, including any other being that might be titled an Elohim, stands on the side of the creatures. Therefore, Israel must worship and serve Yahweh alone. The first commandment states, quote, you shall have no other Elohim beside me, end quote. The second commandment adds that Israel must not, quote, bow in worship to them or serve them, end quote. Over 100 times, the Old Testament warns against worshiping and serving any God except Yahweh, the true God. Thus, premise one of my arguments states that the Bible teaches to worship and serve Yahweh alone. This is why Daniel 7, 13, and 14 should shock us. It reads, quote, Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, end quote. Now, there is much worthy of discussion in this passage, but we will focus on the statement that, quote, those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, end quote. The Aramaic verb often translated serve is palach and means to worship, pay reverence to, or serve deity. Brown Driver Briggs gives the gloss to pay reverence or serve deity. The Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament gives the, the gloss, quote, to serve God. The Bible, or the verb, is used only ten times in the Bible. It always refers to the service or worship of a god. In Ezra, it refers to serving God in the temple. In Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, it refers to serving either the false gods of Babylon, which Daniel and his friends refused to do, or to serving the true God. But in Daniel 7, people of all nations, Palak, serve the Son of Man. Now, the Aramaic Targums use this same term in the Ten Commandments, where people are warned not to serve other gods. The Old Greek translation uses a word that likewise refers specifically to religious service or devotion. It's the Greek word that Jesus uses when he says to, quote, worship the Lord your God and serve him only in Luke 4, verse 8. Thus, Daniel prophesies that people of all nations will serve the Son of Man. Since Jesus himself and others called Jesus the Son of Man over 80 times in the Gospel, my argument stands. Premise 1, the Bible teaches people to worship and serve Yahweh alone. Premise 2, the Bible teaches that people worship Jesus the Son of Man. Conclusion, 
Jesus must be Yahweh. It's pretty slick. I got to give him credit for that. It's pretty slick. There are some of us who study Hebrew. There are some of us who study Greek. But there are a few of us that study Aramaic. And uh, to camp, <laughs> you know, to use an obscure Aramaic word that only occurs 10 times in the entire Bible is almost to like guarantee that nobody's going to be able to check you. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Because like, yeah. most people don't read any Aramaic at all. And if people have time to study and they have the aptitude for it and, and the finances for it, because uh, it can be expensive, they're going to they're gonna go for the big languages. They're not going to probably do Aramaic. But uh, as it turns out, I do have uh, the Halot in front of me, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, which is a standard resource. It's uh, pretty much the, the best Hebrew uh, and Aramaic lexicon that I know of, at least. And it's really interesting, this this entry here, uh, Brandon. I figured I'd, I'd mm. share it with you. It's not so cut and dry, as Kyle was saying. Shocker. Yeah, yeah there's actually more words here than just to serve God. Uh, but mm. it's the word palach, and uh, it's got that chet at the end of the word. So uh, make sure that uh, nobody's too close when you uh, pronounce that word. <laughs> it says to serve God. Yeah, that's true. It does say that. It also says... In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it means to cultivate the land, hmm. which is like, okay. And then in the Syriac, it says to cultivate the field, serve a person, serve God. So this hmm. word is actually capable of saying more than just religious worship to God only. It's used in, uh, let's see, Jewish Aramaic as servant or laborer. Now we're starting to get a little more feel for this word, right? Yep. A servant works the field. A servant yep. worships God. These actually start, kind of fit together. And then when it comes to the meaning in the various verses that Kyle mentioned in Daniel 3.17, 3.12, 3.14, 3.18, 3.28, 6.17, and Ezra 7.24, it does refer to serving. You know, it's just translated serving, but it's done to God. Okay, so back to my earlier point. Within the thousands of words in Scripture, right, there are ten times uh, that this word shows up. And it's true, within the domain of those ten times, nine of the ten are serving to God. So in Daniel 7.14, he makes a case, oh, well, that must mean that they think the Son of Man is God here in Daniel 7.14 because they use this special word. And the they, by the way, would have to be the Septuagint translators, right? Well, this is the Old Testament. This is the Jewish text, and it's Aramaic. We're not talking about the Greek. We're talking about the Aramaic. Gotcha. Okay. The Septuagint thought... also uses a word, latrevo, which lines right up with this word, palach. It means yeah. to serve. Gotcha. Okay. Because I thought that I thought his argument was that latrevo gets used, maybe he goes on further, that latrevo gets used by Paul or somebody no, he said Jesus used it in um, Luke in the Temptations. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. shall serve him only. And I think he was arguing, if memory serves, he argues at some point, Kyle does, that Latrevo is the word that gets translated in the Septuagint for Palach, which yeah. I... There's Palach. My, oh, that's beautiful. My, my total lack of Hebrew. That's um, great. And that was his, his connection, um, and that Latrevo is only for God. But what I think is interesting is that that would mean, if, if he's right... The, the original authors and the Septuagint translators would all have to be thinking 
that this person, this, this son of man is, is a divine being is God, which to me seems like a really kind of extravagant claim, right? Because if, right. If, well, if you have, have God already in the scene in the previous verse. In verse 13, it says, yeah. I saw in the night visions, behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a human being, or yeah. the actual phrase is son of man, one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Look, if I was just explaining it to somebody I was sitting at, at coffee with, be like, hey, there's two here. But if he wants to go with the languages, I thought his whole claim was that Latrevo is for God alone. Latrevo gets yes. used to translate this word. And so this they must have that must be the meaning here. But then that's assuming that the original Septuagint translators were thinking that this one like a son of man is receiving worship destined only for God. It's a bunch of assumptions. But can you imagine Septuagint translators saying, oh yeah, this son of man is receiving the same worship God receives. No. Right? No, I can't. So I I don't think that came up during the debate, but I'm like, there's too many assumptions being made and and it leads to a kind of an outlandish conclusion that there would yet have Septuagint translators that are choosing the, in their minds, supposedly, the word for worship for God exclusively, mm-hmm. or exclusive worship for God for this son of man. It's, it's to your point, it's you push it and follow their assumptions far enough or eventually they crack. This past um, winter, I took my nephew, Micah, snowboarding for the first time. And I don't know how to snowboard. So <laughs> I wasn't very useful in teaching him. I, I ski, I don't snowboard. But anyhow, he borrowed my son's boots and he he put them on his feet and uh he said they fit i said are you sure he said yes and he he crammed his huge feet in there and claimed that they fit so then um and and you can do that in life you can shoehorn you can you can cram some you know meaning or specialized definition into something and it and it looks like it fits but i'll tell you what we got to the bottom of that bunny hill brandon and (laughs) this kid was in tears because his feet were killing him he yeah. he he, had, he did something i've never seen anyone else do in my entire life somehow he he takes his whole foot out of the boots and the snowboard and everything else and he's standing in his socks on the snow he's in so much pain <laughs> it's preferable <laughs> because because the boot doesn't fit so yeah. uh and i think that's what's going on here it's like you know it sounds like a good theory but look the context of chapter 7 of Daniel, as Dustin eloquently pointed out, clearly shows that this human figure is a collective image of the saints. And so yeah. what are we saying, Kyle? Are we saying that the saints are all God? And all the nations are going to serve these divinized humans? Of course. I mean, like, who? I think maybe Mormons believe that or something. But, like, come on, that's not... <laughs> Nobody thinks that. Yeah. And it's clear, you know, you have the, I uh, uh, saw in the night vision, you have these winds, you have these great beasts. Yeah, yeah. The first was a lion. It had eagle's wings. And uh, so what does a lion represent? It represents a nation. It's a singular image that represents a group of humans, an empire, right? And then the next one is uh, you get a bear. Okay. That's verse five. Verse six, you get a leopard. One represents the Babylonians, one represents the, the the Persians, one represents the Greeks, right? You know, there's all these different, you know, I'm not going to get into prophecy theories here, but, <laughs> you know, then you got the weird beast that he doesn't even know what to call it with all these horns. Then there's a human 
figure. Right. So like each one of these animals and then the human figure represents an empire or a kingdom, a group of human beings. So it doesn't even make sense to say, oh, well, the other nine times this word is used, it means serve God. Therefore, the human figure that represents all these saints, they're all gods. You know what I mean? Like, I, I understand what he's doing. I don't think it works that way. I don't think language works that way. Like you said, this is not legal language. Those are some thoughts on Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I don't think what we have here is a clear-cut case that Jesus is called Yahweh. You know what I think it is? I think it's an obscure case that <laughs> depends on specialized usages of rare words. And yeah. it's like, this is the best you got? Yeah. Yeah, he had... His first premise that the Bible teaches that people should worship and serve Yahweh alone is just false. And he's having to reach really far to try to get evidence to support that premise so that he can get his outcome that Jesus is Yahweh. All right, let's keep going. I'll now pass the time to Samuel for our next arguments. All right. Well, let's. <laughs> we might as well end today there. We can come back next time and look at Samuel. Sounds good. Thanks for uh, helping me talk this through, Brandon. It was a lot of fun. Yep. See you next time. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 491, Refuting Kyle Essery's Case That Jesus Is Yahweh, and leave your feedback there. As we said, next week we'll be back for part two, where my good friend Brandon Duke and I consider the opening statement of Samuel Nessan and respond to some of the points that he made there. In a previous episode on early church orders, Paul wrote in saying, Hi, Sean, your passion for early church history has made this series especially enjoyable to listen to. The primary sources you've been quoting are both fascinating and thought-provoking. Let me pause you right there. Paul, so much of my take, if I can put it that way, on early church history is a corrective to typical evangelical or Catholic tellings of the Christian story. And so because I know that the perspective I'm bringing to bear is different than what is typically said on at least some of these subjects, I felt that it was absolutely necessary to include as much primary source documentation as is practical for a lecture where you don't want to put people to sleep so that people would see this is not Sean Finnegan's opinion. This is what they really said. These are their actual words. So uh, that's a little bit on primary sources. Paul continues, he writes, At the end of podcast 489, you spent some time responding to a Daniel McClellan video. One of the points he made was, quote, You can't share a conceptual framework that you can't articulate, end quote. Or as you put it, quote, You cannot believe in an idea that you cannot articulate, end quote. My initial response is to nod my head in agreement. At the same time, I wonder how well something needs to be articulated before it can be believed and shared. I don't think either McClellan or you are suggesting that we need to understand every last detail about something before we can believe it. Here's an example of what I mean. I understand and could articulate in general terms what the idea of a future bodily resurrection from the dead means, but I have no idea what specific process God will use to accomplish it. So I wouldn't be able to articulate that part very well, if at all. But I can still believe in the idea, right? I totally agree, Paul. 
You don't need to explain every detail of something in order to believe it's true. I believe that my car will get me to where I need to go, and I don't understand how the engine works. That's just totally fine. The problem we run into is when we're saying you have to believe something that doesn't make sense. You have to believe in square circles, or you have to believe in an idea that is in some way entirely fuzzy. And I think that's where we run into problems. If I say God exists, I know what I mean by that. I mean a supernatural being, a being that is not human, that is beyond human, that, ha- that is eternal, and I can list off some attributes of what it means to be a God, okay? That's fine. I don't need to understand how God is powered. You know, like, how does his, like, internal source of energy function for me to believe in God? I don't need to understand everything about God to believe that there is a God. The problem with the Trinity model, though, is that it's defined in such a way that once we set the parameters, the boundaries of what it is we're saying about God, we have a hard time even explaining what that means. So if I say there are three cans of soda on the table, and then I say there's also one can of soda on the table, you're going to try to synthesize those two sentences into one overarching idea. Now, I know, obviously, the Trinity theory does not do that, does not say there are three persons and there's one person, uh, but it's not clear what they are saying either. And it's the problem of any kind of positive definition of what it is we're talking about that I think McClellan is pointing to in his statement earlier. Paul goes on, he says, But what's to prevent our Trinitarian friends from using a similar argument with regards to their understanding of God? We don't understand all the details. We just need to affirm the general idea. How would you respond? I'm tempted to say, Paul goes on, before turning to scripture or church history or logic or philosophy, I'm not even sure what it is you're asking me to believe. I hear the words, but I don't know what they mean when they're put together like that. Well, Paul, I think that's a fair point. What are we talking about? Can we give a positive definition of the Trinity that in some sense holds together? When the Trinitarian says, oh, it's just a mystery, how could we ever understand the inner workings of God? I want to come back at them and say, well, then why are you insisting on this definition that you just admitted you don't understand and is a mystery to you? Why are you insisting on that for participation in your church leadership? Why are you insisting on that for getting a PhD at one of your institutions? Why are you insisting on that to attend ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society conferences? Why is that a requirement? Nobody even knows what it is you're saying we have to believe. That's where we run into problems. If somebody says, well, this is our theory, it's very old, we're not really sure what the conciliar language means, we're not sure that they knew what it meant, and for that reason, we're just going to kind of hold this with an open fist rather than clenching down and saying this is necessary for salvation, and if you don't believe it, you're going to be tormented in eternal fire forever. I mean, my goodness, that's what they're saying. So uh, I think there is definitely some space here to consider what it is Trinitarian believers are asking others to do. They're asking others to assent, not understand, not comprehend, but assent, agree to something that they can't understand and they can't explain. And that was a later idea. As we'll see as we continue on in our early church history class, the battles over the nature of Christ, whether he's one nature with the Father, whether he's of like substance, whether he's of other substance, and whether those two natures 
are of one person or two persons or united together or continue to be held distinct from each other. These are all topics that took centuries to develop and to argue out. And really, I think when once you see the development of this in later episodes, you'll be even more convinced that we just took a left turn early on in the fourth century and we were just kind of like never corrected it. Well, this podcast is called Restitutio. It's a Latin word for restoration. And the whole idea here is to restore authentic Christianity. What is authentic Christianity? It's biblical Christianity. And the Bible doesn't include an explanation of the Trinity. So let's just stop forcing this speculation, this 4th and 5th century speculation on everyone and say, look, if you believe in the Bible, and if that's where you're going to leave things, and that's good enough for me. Uh, it seems like that's the best way forward to unite Christianity and to get away from these ideas that are genuinely troubling and are no longer able to be kept secret or hidden or glossed over in evangelical church history textbooks because we have access now. We have access to these sources in the English language, and people can do the research for themselves. So it's a pretty exciting time in which we live. Thanks so much, Paul, for writing in. Really good thoughts there. That's it for today. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that online at our website, restitutio.org. Thanks so much to those of you who are supporting us, especially those folks who are supporting us on a monthly recurring basis. It really does help. Also, if you have Spotify, and if you wouldn't mind, leave us a rating in there on your phone. Uh, because that also helps the others find the show when they do searches, because we have more ratings that helps the algorithm to bump us up higher on the list. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.